0: You are listening to Podco, Making Government Work for Us. Now, here are your hosts, Laura Lee Oates. Luke Ashworth and Stephen Tomlin.
1: Hello, listeners, I'm Luke Ashworth.
2: I'm Laura Lee Oates.
0: And I'm Stephen
3: Tomlin. And this is Podco, Making Government Work for Us. For the next hour, we'll be taking a deeper dive into politics and current affairs with the help of our guests. Our theme today is the economy. What do you think? What is and what should be the role of policy in addressing our clear economic problems? What kind of venues are required for meeting new development challenges? Are the problems of development an internal or external problem or a combination of both? If you want to keep up to date on what we're doing, you can follow the show on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at podco1. Like us on Facebook at podco, uh, C-H-M-R. And our email address is podco C-H-M-R, at gmail.com. We want to hear your feedback. The
1: show is all about making government work for us. We're here in St. John's. We have a great eighth episode lined up for you today. In just a few moments, we're going to speak with Rob Greenwood. He's the director at the Harris Center, as well as associate vice president, public engagement and external relations for Memorial University. But before we get into this conversation, first, we're going to have our weekly news roundup. And uh, am I right in saying, guys, not a hell of a lot has happened this Nothing week? Nothing ever happens.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: okay, so the premier resigned oddly at the end of the news day. He didn't do a news conference. He just kind of put out a a video and didn't take questions from reporters
3: are the knives coming from the inside yes (laughs) well
2: um the story i heard was that recently he tried to prevent his leadership review and most of the board uh, didn't support putting off the leadership review
3: so many problems so many lack of answers
2: (laughs) so many knives in his back
1: Yeah, I was thinking about uh, um, his legacy and how we're going to see him in the future. And, of course, it really all depends on uh, who follows him. I mean, uh, we have a a government that really didn't deal with uh, the issues of uh, economy and the ecology in any sustained way. Um, Democratic reform is still um, uh, an issue. Transparency is still an issue. So I suppose it depends what follows him. I mean, if we're followed by a disaster... Uh, then he'll be seen as a kind of the continuity premier and uh, uh, someone that at least went over a period of status quo. But if he's followed by someone who actually deals with these problems, then he'll um, be seen very much as a, a, just a sort of a continuity, uh, a sort of... Um, uh, treading water? Very, very much reactive,
3: no, nothing really proactive. Um, you know, pushed to do things, never doing things until he's actually pushed. So, having an inquiry in the Muskrat Falls, for, for example, took a long time and, and a long period of time to, to kind of go forward. Uh, But then, of course, tries to take credit for doing things, appearing as if he's proactive, but very much, I think, an old-style politician. And the challenges with patronage and others uh, have kind of really dogged uh, this administration.
2: And the other thing is this triggers an election within a year of a new leader, right? This seems to be – the fact that they're having a leadership review in April seems to be a, a rushed coronation in an attempt to hopefully win the next election.
3: And so many things still on the file, I mean, in terms of paying for mitigation and how we're going to, you know, organize that or, or even who is going to be running. I mean, it looks like there are internal, bit, you know, divisions within the liberal camp. So how are you going to go with the same crew <laughs> or are you going to select a, a new crew or just a new leader? Uh, which, again, this is really going to be a real difficult time for anybody who is in, going to inherit
1: the, the liberal uh, mantle. It's a crossroads. I mean, we, we really are in a kind of all bets are off moment here in provincial politics. Yeah.
2: And we've got um, indigenous protests at the uh, national level.
1: The Wet'suwet'en. Uh,
2: hereditary chiefs. They uh, don't yeah. support the coastal gas link pipeline, uh, but other hereditary chiefs do.
3: And originally the prime minister said that was a provincial problem and he went away, but he came back early because he has to address it because it really is a national problem or international problem.
2: And he says we have rule of law in this country, but the the problem with that is that indigenous people didn't create those laws.
3: (laughs) And he had some troubles, of course, going into the last election as a result of not following rule of law.
2: (laughs) So we've got blockades with trains in Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, which, of course, there's no better way to get central Canadians annoyed than to block off Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal.
3: (laughs) We have no trains, but it does impact upon us.
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh so we've had a reshuffle at number 10 and um boris is making a bit of a power grab there
1: in the uk and uh, a scandal over uh an andrew cummings appointment of um one of these kind of new advisors uh, they're centralizing the advisors uh turns out the man was a eugenicist and a racist and on top of that uh the um resignation of uh, his finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, from losing his team, losing his advisors.
3: It's an old story, executive domination, abuse of power. <laughs> I'm afraid it's all over the
1: world, isn't it? Sorry, Laurie. Yeah, uh, uh,
2: yeah and I think that you're the one who always says, Luke, that uh, Cummings needs to, um, in, instead of just uh, reading the Prince, he needs to read
1: the the discourses. The discourses, is, yeah. His Machiavelli education mm-hmm. is very limited to the smaller of the two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite right, Laurie. <laughs> we not only need <laughs> democratic reform, we need leadership reform <laughs> globally.
2: Irish elections um, and the CDU in
1: uh, Germany. I think that's yeah, your there's area. been a lot going on in in, in Europe as well. Uh, the uh, the CDU, the kind of the leader that Merkel had um, uh, had supported, forced to resign. Uh, the link there to uh, populism too, because uh, it was over the issue of the CDU not being able to uh, have control over um, a party in one of the Länder who basically sided with uh, the Alternative for Deutschland, the far-right populist party. And the Irish election is an interesting one. Um, The two major parties who have dominated Irish politics uh, since the treaty uh, for 100 years, um, both barely managing to uh, to scrape into the sort of a third of the vote with uh, a surprise win for Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin's a weird one. It um, simultaneously brings together kind of ultra-nationalist groups but also has been trying to reinvent itself as more of a social democratic party. So this is looking like um, a kind of um, attack to the left um, and a lot of young voters going for Sinn Fein as well. So possibility here when we see the figures come out that it might be a, a bit of a youth quake too. Uh, we've talked a lot about the kind of
3: the combination uh, of globalization and inequality. And again, globalization at the aggregate level looks pretty good, but what's going on on the ground isn't going so good. And I think we're seeing the rise of young people, we're seeing the rise of social protests, we're seeing the rise of populism in many
1: respects in response to that, those kind of forces uh, going, going at one another. Yeah, and on the CDU thing as well is the rise of the Green Party. Sorry, Laurie. It's okay.
2: No. Um, And um, just bringing it back home, um, we've had some problems here at the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Corporation. Um, And Russell Williams, the department head, recently made um, an important point at the Fiscal Realities Conference last week. That um, really, we should be getting more revenue out of the uh, NLC than we are relative to what other provinces are getting. And it should be a greater source of revenue for us. But it turns out we found out why the CEO was fired, um, Steve Winters, because he was giving business to his own son at a great markup. So really, there is a lot of opportunity for revenue there.
3: Well, the crown corporations have really caused a lot of problems for Newfoundland and Labrador. Either being ex- exploited by the executive branch, or the incompetence in terms of not controlling them.
2: And finally, we've had continued hiring problems on the Hill here with, um, I guess, a former deputy minister of natural resources being contracted right away by NALCOR as soon as he resigned with uh, quite a good salary and benefits. And we also had the return of um, Carla Foote to the Hill into an ADM position. Um, I mean, I've been on record as saying government hiring practices need to be part of any democratic reform process. But the premier's office can ordinarily hire hire whoever they want as a deputy minister or assistant deputy minister but really there has been a practice in the past of those positions being advertised through the public service commission um and there needs to be a return to that but i would also argue there needs to be um, firewalls put up to have less interference kind of between the premier's office and the public service commission on those hiring processes
3: I wonder whether, you know, Greg Mercer and, and Dwight Ball's management or mismanagement of these these kind of scandals <laughs> that it didn't bring out the knives, well, both within caucus, and caucus or within cabinet.
2: I think we have a really weak public service right now is kind of the part of the ball um, legacy and we we need a professional civil service right then they need to be treated as professionals and we we need a strong civil service to withstand a potentially weak government really
3: we want democratic reform that actually ties in the politics <laughs> or prevents the kind of the the freewheeling uh democracy that we we've enjoyed but for freewheeling for the executive branch not for citizens
1: yeah. We'll take a break now. When we return, we'll be joined by our first guest, Rob Greenwood. We'll be asking him about the changing role of public policy and uh, what he sees as be as necessary for defining and resolving a variety of development challenges in the province. Making government
0: work for us. Podco. We'll be right back.
1: This is the Social Media News. I'm your weird co-worker. You won't hear this anywhere else, but the Canadian government has made contact with aliens... And they are covering it up because the aliens aren't politically correct enough. No respect for the taxpayers.
4: Social media isn't journalism. So why does our government give billions to social networks while Canadian newsrooms die out? Visit friends.ca to learn more. Authorized by Friends of Canadian Broadcasting.
1: You're tuned to 93.5 CHMR-FM, broadcasting live from the campus of Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland.
4: Now
0: back back to to Hotco, making government work for us. With With Lori Leos, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin.
2: Welcome back to Podco, Making Government Work for Us. Um, I'm honored to introduce our first guest. Um, Dr. Rob Greenwood is the director of the Harris Center, as well as associate vice president of public engagement and external relations for MUN. He served as a director and assistant deputy minister of policy development um, in both the provinces of Newfoundland and Labrador and Saskatchewan. He holds a doctorate in industrial and business studies from the University of Warwick. He was the editor of Remote Control that was published in 2009, included articles from David Fresh. Water and our own Steve Tomlin, um, and it's great to have him with us here today.
1: Welcome, Rob. Yeah. Um, first question, let's, let's keep it broad to begin with, uh, but uh, based on, on both your research and experience in government, uh, what do you think are the main issues that are now facing the provincial economy, uh, and how do we address them?
4: Mm. They are a (laughs) legion. Although I'm also a glass-half-full person, so I also uh, am optimistic and and think there's amazing uh, upsides and and opportunities for us. A lot of the work the Harris Centre has done over the last number of years has been on demographics and obviously labour market, skills, ageing population, rural-to-urban migration, all the stuff we looked at in our population project. It's kind of an overlay on everything you think about in terms of economic development for the province from here on in, and, and it's been happening for quite a while. In fact, this one is a little bit like, the you know, the, the boiling the frog syndrome, where people have been saying this long before the Harris Centre was saying it. I think a lot of the work that we've done with Alvin Sims in the Geography Department, Jamie Ward in the Harris Centre RAND Lab Group, Regional Analytics Lab, has given it much more fine-grained detail at the sub-provincial level. And in fact, some believe we're, we're doing work there that's the best in the country which really helps leaders in the local level in parts of the province get a much finer understanding of the challenges they're facing. So I think the demographic one, for sure. Obviously, the depends on oil. It's blessing and curse, as we know. And if it hadn't been, and, you know, I'm getting old and cynical, but, you know, Brian Peckford and his team, way back when, uh, we wouldn't have had the money we have today if it wasn't for really uh, engaged public policy foresight, they sent people to Norway, to Scotland, to learn about how a subnational jurisdiction, uh, and in the Norwegian case a national, but with some really innovative approaches, cool. can make the most of resource sector development, and we did it. And the Atlantic Accord was something that was fought over over many, many years. Uh, how we handled the injection of wealth is a, a big question for discussion and relates to public policy and a lot of what you folks have already been discussing. So, you know, with the, the Harris Centre, in fact, is working on our 2020-21 strategic action plan. We have a whole series of programs that we do all the time, Memorial Presents, Synergy Sessions, Galbraith, all using MUN faculty and, and staff and external partners. We're looking at Clumping a lot of that over the next couple of years under the theme of climate, economy, and society because we can't look at them in separation anymore. That said, there are some really exciting things happening. Everything has issues, you know. So on the south coast of this province, uh, aquaculture is a massive, evolving, some challenges, absolutely. But, you know, I did my research uh, way back when comparing Newfoundland and Northern Norway. I've done a load of work around the North Atlantic Rim over the last two, three decades. The Nordic folks I often see as the adults on planet Earth. They have really well-developed democracies and really social, socially-minded industry. And, you know, it's as we know, the social democratic leadership on Earth. And so the Norwegian companies coming in here, it, let's not be mistaken, they are loyal to their country and they want benefits for their country. But they also bring a... a, a a rational, logical, dare we say, wise approach to investment. So don't downplay the significance of the aquaculture development because of some short-term developmental issues. And lots of challenges going forward, and maybe I'll regret these words in 20 years, but I don't think so. Planet Earth needs food. And if you think on-land aquaculture is going to take the place of in-sea, Maybe down the road it will. It won't be in Newfoundland and Labrador because of geography.
3: So, uh, so what does the imperial economy and resource curse mean to you? How do we move past the imperial economy in Newfoundland and Labrador?
4: I don't think we do. I'm sorry. Again, I'm getting old and cynical. It's about power. It's about wealth. And on planet Earth, the centralization of power and money continues There's lots of exciting new trends and opportunities, and thank God it gives us some hope. I think the climate crisis threatens to shake things up a bit, thank God in a way. It's scary in another way. It takes scary stuff to shake us off the norm. But, you know, the the U.S. of A., as screwed up as it seems is economically still amazingly powerful with these global firms with power like they've never had before. China is rising and some of their corporations are enormously influential in our country, in in Africa, around the world. Capitalism is still the game in town. And I think what we really have to do, and you know, I think the Canadian left historically is too earnest and not not strategic enough. And you know, I still think Karl Marx's analysis of capitalism was probably the most accurate we've had. His prescription of what to do about it was wrong, and so how we move forward needs new thinking, new approaches, and needs us to embrace the cold, harsh, nasty, unfortunate reality of global capitalism and be smart about it. So how do we? Mike Clare at the Harris Center for years, I think he's a fifth degree black belt in jujitsu. He can only take you on if you attack him. So we need to understand the social forces we're facing. If we don't like them, you can't wish them away. You need to understand how, as a jurisdiction, Newfoundland and Labrador can make the most of this amazing place that we love. Within the rules of the game, change them where you can. But don't tilt at windmills. Don't try to battle things you're not gonna change. I live my life by a grid that's impact versus ease of implementation. If something is hard to do, low impact, kill it now. Why bother with that? If it's high impact, easy to do, great. But not much in life is that way. High impact, hard to do, and that involves choices. And it's why we need programs like this. We need good public policy. We need community engagement, blah, blah, blah.
2: So I, I like what you said there, too, about adults on planet Earth. Um, <laughs> so what do we need to do to develop rural Newfoundland and Labrador? And what lessons can we learn from other jurisdictions in building our rural economy?
4: Well, that's really the fixation of my career. And uh, I uh, I think there's most of the lessons are well-known. Worldwide and certainly in Canada, uh, the Harris Centre has been active in the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation for years, SURF, C-R-R-F. Bill Reimer and Bruno Jean and Peter Apedale and many rural research leaders have been looking at this stuff for 40 years. There's a great new generation uh, of young and often women leadership in SURF who are involved in public policy in universities in community development We've also been active in the North Atlantic Forum for years around the North Atlantic Rim. And so the lessons in, in large part for me, and it goes back to work I did doing my PhD comparing Newfoundland and Northern Norway, it's about strategy and structure. So it's understanding the assets you have. It's understanding, and some of what I said earlier, the harsh realities of global capitalism, as well as where the niches and opportunities, and then being deliberate, in marshaling your labor market, your infrastructure, your business investment, your entrepreneurship development, your post-secondary education, to maximize your chances in all that, and then the structure part of that is—and you know—I like the European Union concept of subsidiarity you can debate whether they actually apply it you know and it goes back to the jesuits apparently subsidiarity you only put in rome what you must put in rome well you only put in brussels what you must put in brussels you only put at the national level what you need to put it. you start at the local level canada's confederation is built in the exact opposite direction confederation inverted commas, is a lie. It, it, it was a federation the way John A. developed it. It was a way to suck in the Maritimes. The, the residual power, the declaratory power, the fiscal power was all in Ottawa. Canada, of course, and you're all the political scientists, evolved over time with the growth of the welfare state. We do have fiscal federalism. We have a lot more power at the provincial level than we did at the beginning. Subprovincial, we're a basket case. The OECD did a review of Canada 20 years ago. Canada has the weakest local government in the OECD. The federal government tried to take that out of that report. Newfoundland and Labrador, because of our history, it's unique, it's wonderful, it makes us with the unique stoic survivalist culture we have, we also have the weakest local democratic efficacy in the country. People in Newfoundland and Labrador survive, but they look to strong provincial and strong federal leaders to solve problems for them. And we know in the global economy, it's buzzwords, but think global, act local. We have the least capacity to act local in the Western world.
1: Mm. It's interesting uh, that uh, this has been a theme that's come up in in a number of the uh, discussions that we've had that uh, about Canadian federalism and the the need to really rethink Canadian federalism and it comes down to a lot of the problems we're facing uh, being linked to uh, the way that federalism has developed. Mm-hmm. But, but I wanted to turn to regionalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've uh, spoken and written Rob, uh, much about the regionalization silver bullet uh, that never gets loaded. <laughs> uh, do you do you still see regionalization as the best option for creating new patterns of rural-urban collaboration and innovation?
4: Absolutely. It's, it's a no-brainer. And it, it one size does not fit all, and we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Lots of cliches here. There's lots of good models, and I've I've done this interview for 30 years, and, and I started thinking, maybe I should just shut up and maybe something <laughs> will happen. Because everybody, I've done presentations to municipalities, Newfoundland, and Labrador. They get it. They've been leading this cause for 20 years. And I've done it nationally and internationally. And Northern Ontario has tried to model what they were doing on the economic zones that Newfoundland had. And as you probably know, i was very involved in, in helping set that up as well as studying this stuff. And so individual dots on the map, municipalities in the vast majority of regions of Newfoundland, Labrador, and Canada do not operate in isolation. People get up in the morning in their home and they drive to work in a neighboring community. Their kids go to school in another neighboring community. They go shop in another neighboring community. Their garbage landfill goes to another neighbor, et cetera, et cetera. And yet our governance mechanisms in this country, and even worse in this province, do not reflect the reality of how we need to make decisions on the local regional level, the locality level, the labor market area. And and one size does not fit all. British Columbia, Bob Bish at the local government center at UVic for years did the best work on this in the country, helped shape the regional district model in B.C., which is a formal provincial government-approved vehicle for allowing multi-community collaboration with taxation powers. Quebec, for years, has had the MRCs, the Municipal Regional Counties, and it started out really simple back when we were doing the economic zones. I actually wanted us to do something similar to that. Where they, the government, because in Canada, municipalities are the creature of the provinces under the constitution. The the provincial government drew the lines on the map and said, these 15, 20 municipalities should be working together. Initially, only on land use planning. If you don't like the boundaries, the provincial government in Quebec said, change them and then come back to us with the edits that you think make sense. But then start doing the land use planning. We'll resource it but if you want to do other functions in that spatial scale collectively this provides you a mechanism to do that and they've been doing it for 20 years and it works so we have loads of voluntary intermunicipal cooperation happening in this province but we also have massive gaps especially beyond the northeast avalon and if rural newfoundland is to have a chance and when we you look at the resource based In relation to the population, you know, our GDP per capita is very high, actually. Our debt per capita is very high, unfortunately. Our resource endowment per capita is off the charts. If we can't make a go of making this a prosperous, sustainable, successful province, shame on us. Because we have such an endowment, and look, we can complain about the Brits all we want, but the, the governance system we have inherited is the envy of most of the earth the the infrastructure we have in place, we can complain about it. Compared to 90% of planet Earth, we're living the dream. It is, I have seen the enemy and it is us. And I think the boomers, and I'm one of them, ha, are, are the most blessed generation, the most blessed generation ever on the face of the Earth. We're spoiled rotten and we want to play till we die. And, and I often, when I present now in, in rural Newfoundland, when I'm amongst friends, what kind of province do you want it to be when, you, when you're dead? Because I know you don't want anything to change while you're alive. But this is such an amazing place with real authenticity and culture and, and access to, to nature. We can make this
3: work. So you and I have been in this region about for a while, but I'm going to shift. Tech has grown by 20%, mm. Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, but by 20,000 or uh, 200,000 uh, globally in, in the last decade. How do you develop a
4: digital and knowledge sectors in our province? I think we're actually doing a great job on that front. And I would say in large part, thank you very much, Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, We have grown in the last number of years, you know, during the boom, so we can think about how we squandered the fiscal, and we'll see down the road what we think of Muskrat in 40, 50 years, but right now it's pretty scary. But during the boom, Memorial had, and this is partly wearing my government relations hat, and I spent a lot of time in Ottawa positioning Memorial, helping bring resources to the province. We've developed the Coasts Initiative, Cold Oceans and Arctic Science, Technology and Society. That didn't invent anything. That was building up a Memorial faculty have been doing since the beginning, based on our reality in the North Atlantic, and we're the only university, and so... During the boom, we had at any one time 80 MUN co-op students in Houston. Wrap your head around that. Plus Calgary, plus Aberdeen, plus around the world. And this generation over the last 10, 15 years have not an ounce of the Newfoundland inferiority complex. They have knowledge and national networks and expectations and awareness of the global supply chain that would knock your socks off. And when there's a dip, as is always the case with entrepreneurship, if you can't get a six-figure job with with a dental plan, many will create one. Some people have to be an entrepreneur, it's in them, they have no option. Most people aren't like that. But if they don't have better options, they will become it. And MUN, over the last 10 years, we've always had good people doing good work in these areas, but we've actually been much more deliberate in creating an innovation steering committee, a co-steering committee, Coordinating committees. We've been very targeted in chasing funding to feed into this. Genesis is going crazy. The Munn Center for Entrepreneurship is going crazy. The Munn Center for Social Enterprise is doing great work. The medical field is doing great work with the Bounce Lab. And we're starting to see results. I mean, Verifin is an amazing success story. Hey Orca. I mean, you can list off five or ten growth companies, many in Ocean Tech. Although you look at Verifin, well that's totally different. Well, actually those guys started in the engineering faculty and I can't wrap my head around this, working on software for downhole mining. They pivoted to financial sector security. And now their motto is we fight crime. And they're an exciting company that, they over have over five hundred employees. I think they hired a hundred people last year. They're building a new building. So we gotta partly, you know, there's doom and gloom in this province. A lot of it is justified. A lot of it is not. And so the the Marine Institute is a machine connecting with industry, not just in fishery, but in ocean transportation, in ocean observation. Glenn Blackwood talks about the Holyrood Marine Base as Woods Hole North. Take a drive out there. It's not that far. And have a look at what's going on. But we're also doing work in Lewisport, in Stephenville, in, in Norris Point. The Labrador Institute is now moving into agriculture diversification in the north. Climate change, keep track of it. There's opportunities moving northward. There's a lot of scary things with climate change. So the tech sector relates to all of that. NIA, the Newfoundland Environmental Industry Association, is about economic opportunities in the environmental sector. So green tech is a growing opportunity that isn't a switch from the envir- the resource sector. It's a different way of doing We need natural resources. I-, I saw someone tweet recently, we should stop mining. Huh? Are, are you out of your brain? The stuff that comes out of the ground is everything that's around us. We need to be environmentally friendly and sustainable, but some non-renewable resource sectors are essential to human life. Oil and gas, we got to get off it, but if we're going to be using it over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, Newfoundland and Labrador actually has a better environmental re- regulatory regime, cleaner in terms of carbon impact. So... I really think there's a generation of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and new people coming here with knowledge, with risk tolerance, with money. So I think, in fact, it's going to be hard to keep this province down. Uh, The Bank of Canada had a session here last summer. I presented on demographics and rural, and they had people there from uh, Grieg, and they had people talking about oil and gas and muskrat and aquaculture, et cetera. And I taught, met one of the economists uh, the week later in, in, in Nova Scotia. He's a bank candy economist based in Atlantic. And I said, how'd it go? What did they think of it? And he said, well, most of the board had never been here before. He said, they were blown away. And he said, you know what? Newfoundland, uh, you, you look at the Maritimes, it's a bond. It, it's going to grow a bit. It's, it's quite secure, but it's not going to grow much. He said, Newfoundland Labrador, it's equity. It is risky. It is facing challenges. But you know what he said? In 20 years, Newfoundland Labrador could be the richest province in Canada. Now, I'm not saying this. This is an economist with the Bank of Canada. So I think often we get into our little circles of negativity and, and, and confusion. It reminds me of my courses with Greg Keeley way back when in, in industrial, his, industrial relations and labor history and the industrial revolution. In a time of transition and change you have the residual and the emergent coexisting and Newfoundland and Labrador is exactly there. We have a whole generation, I'm part of it, of the boomers who have seen a way of doing in this province with high unemployment and labor surplus and resource development to maximize jobs as just, yes, of course you have to do that. That's over. We have fish plants that can't recruit enough workers now. Gilbert Linstead in the Labrador Straits at a Harris Center session last year at the Labrador Fishermen's Union Shrimp Company said he used to get hell when he talked about automation because you're eliminating jobs. He said, I can't save jobs anymore without automation. And so on tech and opportunities in this province, I think that the roof is blowing off actually And there's loads more opportunities.
2: Um, And that leads nicely into our final question. How do we prepare for the green economy and uh, the challenges of climate change? And how can this be good for the economy?
4: Talent. It's all about talent. It's about unleashing young people who aren't bound by the old ways of thinking that we have, most of us in this room, uh, and who are concerned about the climate, But who also want a good life. And there are alternative, there's always been alternative lifestyles presented. But when you watch social media, when you watch the big tech companies that are booming off the charts, people are still consumers. People still want to keep up with the Joneses. It's as bad or worse in that regard as it's ever been. So again, it goes back to my initial points about jujitsu and not pretending we're going to change the system. The system is changing, but it's still going to be, I think, capitalism. But it's, we need to find out the green tech, the innovative, the sustainable, still making a profit, still generating wealth, still creating prosperous lifestyles. And I think a lot of us are going to be gnashing our teeth and pulling our hair while it's happening around us. And I think there's loads of that. Uh, the, uh, again, you go to some of the, the conferences, workshops, the hackathons, the, uh, what NIA is doing, um, what the in rural Newfoundland, the community business development centers, uh, municipalities in Newfoundland, Labrador. There is a wave of demand and opportunity around green tech. It's not a sector, it's an enabler across sectors and it's happening in every sector so uh- Sorry, if you were looking for doom and gloom, I'm not going to give it to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, there's plenty of doom and gloom on Twitter. So uh, actually, this has been a a, a a nice kind of sort of uh, well, since you brought up Marx, this has been a a, a, um, a kind of a, a useful uh, antithesis. There you go. Hopefully, leading to a synthesis. But uh, thanks, Rob. I mean, I think um, the, the themes on uh, the governance problems, mm. global realities. I think the importance as well of, of thinking in in a political economy terms. Mm. We have to think not just uh, in terms of the economy but also in terms of institutions uh, and people and uh, and uh, and cultures and and changing generations um, we want to hear from you do you have questions about the involvement of uh, of uh, government and uh, um, and society in the economy uh, Follow us on Twitter, Let, uh, like us on Facebook, and express your opinions by sending them to our, uh, our email address. Our Twitter handle is at uh, podco1, Facebook is podcochmr, and the email is podcochmr at gmail.com. Wonderful seeing Rob, who I've known for decades. Uh,
3: anyway, now we'll take a break. When we return, we'll be joined by our second guest, Kimberly Orrin, of Fishing mm-hmm. for Success, We'll talk about how the green economy and addressing climate change can be good for economic planning at the community level in Newfoundland and
0: Labrador. Making government work for us. Podco. We'll be right back.
4: If you're a chronic nostalgic who loves the music in Newfoundland and Labrador, Tune in to the Newfound Records Radio Hour on CHMR 93.5 FM on Saturdays at noon. Join host Wayne Tucker as he shines a light on the music of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So whether you're a sentimental old-timer who's stuck in a vinyl groove, or a newbie eager to hear hard-to-find-roots music from Newfoundland and Labrador, tune in to the Newfound Records Radio Hour on Saturdays at noon, where the unexpected is the norm.
0: Volunteering, it can begin with the simplest of gestures, a gift of time, energy, commitment. Something precious that grows stronger with every hand that touches it, and grows across communities and through the very fabric of our nation, and begins once again with the simplest of gestures. To Canada's six and a half million volunteers, thanks. A message from Volunteer Canada, the Government of Canada, and this station.
1: Broadcasting to the world via MP3 stream at www.chmr.ca, you're tuned to Mun Radio, 93.5 CHMR-FM, your only music alternative.
0: Now back to Podco, Podco making, making government, government work for us with Lori Oates, Luke Ashworth,
3: and Stephen Tomlin. Welcome back to Podco. I'm Stephen Tomlin. I'm Luke Ashworth.
2: And I'm Lori Oates.
3: And we're back with Kimberly Oren. Kimberly is a former high school science teacher turned commercial fisherman and co-founder of Fishing for Success, a non social enterprise in Petty Harbour is creating a new pathway for all of us to reconnect with our fishing heritage. She serves on her town council as a founding member of its local tourism association and also serves on the advisory committee for Food First and Ocean Frontier Institute. Kimberly spoke uh, to the greater value of fish and fishing at the 2018 St. John's TED slash speaker and is a contributor to the 2019 uh, St. John's Status of Women's Council Uh, Woman's Almanac. She was honored to be recognized as as a 2018 St. John's YMCA Woman of Distinction for Girls Who Fish program. When not teaching others about fishing, Kimberly is probably out picking berries.
1: (laughs) 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 Sounds good. Yeah. Um, Kimberly, welcome. Um, Here at Podco, we believe that uh, addressing climate change and our economic needs uh, are, are kind of tied together. Uh, perhaps you could explain to us your views on why addressing climate change is good economic planning.
5: Oh, well, loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> they all are. <laughs> I know. I saw that. I felt like I was taking a graduate exam or something. Um, Discuss. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Um, you know, when you try to pick things apart, you find that you really can't. So it, it's not just economics and climate change that's um, interdependent. It's uh, it's it's everything really that's interdependent. It's gender equity and equality. It's um, poverty and mm-hmm. um, um, food security and all of these uh, democratic reform things that are hitting us in the face. And all of these things are um, are interconnected and intertwined. Until we pick them all apart, we really can't address climate change issues. But to speak to the things that are probably closest to um, um, what I ta- may talk about, especially with fishing, um, I think the biggest thing that I could speak to today might be the issue around ecosystem services. One of the things that we don't really address, especially when we're talking about business, is talking about how... We've allowed businesses or just people in general to use ecosystem services for free. And so what I mean by that is, you know, take for example bees and uh, the fact that 15 to 30 percent of uh, food has to be pollinated by bees. And yet bees are going to be impacted by climate change. And so what's going to happen when the bees aren't able to pollinate our food? Ecosystem services in regards to sequestering carbon, for example, you know as uh, climate change increases the ability of the uh, the ocean to sequester carbon or bogs to sequester carbon is going to decrease and so you've got that feedback loop system there was a study in 1997 that said ecosystem services are worth something like 33 trillion dollars or something which was actually more than the entire Global um, GDP. so of course there was actually some discussion as to whether or not that was really true or not. but all of these things that all of these ecosystems provide for us and producing oxygen and purifying our air and our water and pollinating our food that we grow and processing waste and what's going to happen with that. So then we look at and think about um, most vulnerable and marginalized people, are going to be the first that are impacted with climate change. And so if you're a compassionate person, that, um, that might be a big concern for you, and especially if you um, work for or volunteer for a nonprofit. Communities that are resource-dependent, if you think about farming, fishing communities, or logging or forestry communities, they're, they're also going to be um, first to be hit and impacted by climate change.
2: Okay, so um, you're involved with Fishing for Success, as we said in your introduction. Um, so perhaps you can tell us how making the fisheries sustainable and addressing climate change can be good for economic planning at the community level.
5: Uh, I like to refer to um, some of the work that um, Polly has done on small-scale fisheries to talk about that. And when we talk about sustainable, there's a number of different ways that you can talk about sustainable. You can talk about the kind of gear that's used as to whether or not the gear and whether it protects the habitat. Because protecting the habitat is important because protecting the habitat so the fish return or the fish stay there. Because if your habitat isn't um, isn't there, if you've removed all the furniture from the house, people aren't going to live there. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with the habitat for the fish. So uh, using a single hook and line protects the habitat. And it also means that at the end of the day, you roll up your gear and go home, and so you're not likely to have bycatch such um, that entangles whales or other marine mammals. Also, using small-scale um, fishing, such as smaller boats, also means that you're using less fuel and you have a much smaller carbon footprint when you're going out to, to catch your fish. Also, another advantage to using the smaller kinds of gear that are less damaging to the environment means that you use more humans to do the work. So you also have sort of a, a social program or employment Then uh, if you talk about fishing close to shore, you also have that you're using less or you're interacting less with the IUU kinds of fishing, which is the illegal, unreported, Mm. and unregulated fishing that's occurring in the high seas, which uh, folks are finding out more and more that these are associated with other kinds of illegal activities like human slavery and drug running and um, other very illicit and illegal activities that we of course, shouldn't be supporting. And it um, is contributing to the reduction in um, other kinds of um, species and fish out there because the bycatch is so high. So, supporting small scale fisheries is really important because it also supports our communities by supporting those people who work and live in those small communities.
3: So you're also uh, involved with the Ocean Frontier Institute. Oceans are such an important part of our economy and environment in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, we're also a center of excellence here for fields like oceanography. Uh, how can taking care of our oceans be good for the economy? What kinds of green economy planning can we do in relation to our oceans?
5: Well, the Ocean Frontier Institute is a huge research consortium, and so the part that I help or advise is the governance component, the social science component, the human piece of it, the community piece of it. And, um, and so thinking about how humans in the communities are impacted by the fishing that happens. So going back again, of course, to that small-scale fishing with the little boat that's tied up to the community wharf and what that looks like and so that's what's um really important to folks here in newfoundland and labrador because there's so much interconnectedness between that small boat at the wharf and other kinds of activities whether it's um, supporting the local fish plant uh, supporting tourism um, supporting your other businesses in the community where uh, fishermen shop and people who work at the fish plant also shop, instead of the large boats where the fish are sent away for processing and where the fish may not even really be landed here but um, sent away for um, global distribution. When you think of most of the fish here in Newfoundland and Labrador, 80 to 90 percent of it is uh, shipped immediately away and is not even, really doesn't even land on the coast. Have any of you ever had a surf clam in Newfoundland?
2: I'm pretty sure I have because I've worked in fisheries for five years. Yeah, did
5: you have a surf clam here in Newfoundland? Uh, Actually, no, I think it was in Norway. Yeah.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so
5: that's one of the interesting things about our global distribution chain. We we may be fishing uh, these species right off our shore, but most of us here who live and work in Newfoundland and Labrador may not even get to enjoy some of these organisms that we're capturing ourselves because they're... Yeah, they enter that global distribution chain. And because we're only half a million people, we actually don't get to enjoy some of these species ourselves.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You're also involved, Kimberly, with the new Action Committee on Fish and uh, Food with the Social Justice Co-op. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about this group uh, and uh, what role food plays in the green economy and sustainable planning.
5: Much of the work that this group is doing is providing voice to um, everyday citizens who, for example, when you think about the government organizing some of these um, these meetings to um, get feedback from citizens. It's, um, you know, it's a, a meeting in a community and they move on to the next one. And it's another consultation in a community and they move on. And so they. It's, if you can't make it that one night because you don't have a sitter or you're working, then you've missed that opportunity. And so the fortunate thing about this group is that they are having many meetings and they are accessible. There's babysitting they even welcome breastfeeding. It's mm-hmm. uh, multiple meetings, and they so you have an opportunity then to get your voice heard. The idea is to suss out all of those little tweaks to our food system here that, that we need to shore up. And, of course, Snowmageddon really opened up some of those weaknesses um, that we're finding in it. The idea about the green economy and our food system, again, is this idea that We need to start thinking about, too, this um, carbon footprint that our food has, how far away are we shipping it, can we have local food for local people, and what does that look like? What kinds of policies need to be changed at the uh, provincial and the federal level in order to have um, local food for local people, And and what kinds of support do we need from government in order to do that? And um, so providing um, that space for people to have those discussions is really important. So, um, you know, for example, if we have fish here and 90% of it is being shipped away, uh, but yet we're shipping uh, cow from Alberta, which is 3,000 miles away, what does the balance of that look like? What can we do to get uh, local fish more accessible to local people? And uh, what kind of discussion do we need to have around that? The average age of uh, fishermen here is almost 60. And what um, kind of succession plan do we need to have?
2: Okay, and final question. Um, What do you think are the new opportunities on the horizon um, and sectors that could potentially um, we could build as a province as we prepare for climate change?
5: Well, that's one of the exciting things is because oftentimes the greatest challenges can also be the um, greatest opportunity for entrepreneurial businesses to open up. And I think sometimes we need to examine the old and the traditional to see how they can be rejigged. There are um, businesses in Europe that are now taking a look at using sale again to distribute cargo Is that you know, something that we can do, re-examine our relationship with uh, hook and line fishing and see how we can rejig that, and and look at um, the rhetoric around climate change activism and, and think about supporting, uh, again, the most vulnerable among us. Because if, we're, if we are leaving them behind, um, we're going to have a, a huge part of, of all of our societies that are with an increased inequality and inequity, there that's going to be an issue. We do have nonprofits and charities that are are working and doing the heavy lifting of government uh, to change that. But what kind of support system do we need to provide for them? Some of the um, new horizons, of course, are going to be in, in food, in transportation, and um, and even um, some of the interesting things that have been popping up about. Even using our smartphones and the amount of energy that's required to support the new uh, streaming, uh, it was amazing to see how much energy that we use just to stream Netflix and, uh, and so thinking rethinking that um, also is really important but
2: Oh, okay. Wow. That, that's interesting. <laughs> Netflix. <Yeah>.
5: Yes. <laughs> um, makes you rethink Snowmageddon when you're um, having an impact on your carbon footprint <laughs> by streaming your Netflix during the snowstorm. So thank you, Kimberly. And
2: thank you for tying the, I guess, the gr- issues of the green economy, the fishery, um, climate change into the, our bigger economic issues overall. Um, so here at Podco, we want to hear from you. How can the, a green economy in addressing climate change contribute to a health and e- healthy economy how should we be planning at the local level you can follow us on twitter our twitter handle is at podco one like our facebook page at um, podco chmr and our email address is podco chmr at gmail.com thank you for joining us for this episode of podco making government work for us we will leave you with this quote from barack obama a green, renewable energy economy isn't some pie-in-the-sky far-off future. It is now. It is creating jobs now. It is providing cheap alternatives to $140 per barrel oil now. And it can create millions of additional jobs, an entirely new industry, if we act now. Until next time. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye. 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 <laughs>
0: If you have any questions or opinions on today's program, you can like Podco on Facebook, follow Podco on Twitter, or email your questions and opinions to PodcoCHMR at gmail.com. This has been Podco with Lori Leots, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin.